And welcome back to the Leatherbound Podcast. As always, you are joined by me, who is Ben, and the other guy who doesn't talk for the first little intro bit is Hunter, so you get to play a fantastic game and try to figure out who he is eventually when he shows up. We are a podcast where two cousins try to learn how to be better people by reading big books, and then Hunter says something nerdy. That's how this goes. Yes, thank you for introducing me. This is an audio (laughs) seminary on moral improvement via literary masterpiece from the greatest authors, both contemporary and historical, and uh, whatever you said was wrong. Hunter, it's growing on me. I gotta tell you. Is it, though? No. Is it, though? Um, Okay. That's the first rule of improv. I always say yes, but I couldn't even maintain it. Yes, and? Yes, and. That's... Oh, thank you for that. You're Um, welcome. Anyway, No. So let's move on. <laughs> no but. <laughs> no, no but. I like that. Um, yeah. It's better than like no actually. That no, would be even worse. Actually? You know, actually. Like, yeah, that's pretty um, rough. Hunter, actually what we are talking about today is one of the most mind-blowing books for me of all of the times. Today we are oh. talking about John Milton's Paradise Lost. In case you didn't know, and in that case, oh crap, uh, I'm really excited to talk about this book, partially because this is our, oh dang it, how do, can you say septuple episode? Is that a thing? Septuple for seventh? No, I think you were just going to say seventh. No (laughs) but. Yeah, and no but. No but on that. Sorry well, about dang that. It. Okay, this is our seventh episode, and it also is the last episode of the season. So yeah. we get to wrap this season up and finally freaking release the thing. We've been waiting so long. I'm pretty pumped for that. Um, how are you feeling about the last episode today, buddy? I'm I'm excited for it. You know, it's, it's funny, too, because uh, I hope this doesn't put a damper on the episode but we talked about by far in a way my favorite book in this topic at the beginning yeah um, my probably my favorite book of all time so that is not to say anything bad about john milton's uh idea but i if you were if you've been paying uh, paying attention at home we kind of gave you the punchline to this whole idea uh that we're tackling in season one that it's better to be right than it is to be right in a sense that it's better to have your faith than it Hunter, is to, to be you, you, intelligent. You said the same word. You said it's better to be right than it is to be right. What I think you meant to say was it's better to be righteous than it is to be right. Right, exactly. And I, I, I was going back over it. <laughs> okay, I said I said to be righteous than intelligent. That's the that's the subtext. But. But 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 the Brothers Kramazov, I feel like, is like the book that kind of proves that argument out. And I feel like everything else that we've done is another take on that idea. Mm. Um, this is more like I don't I don't even know what to describe this. Paradise Lost is like this. Well, it's epic poetry. There's not that much of it, uh, to be frank, and it's unique in that aspect. And it's definitely like this amazing view of um what that looked like in our in the primordial christian world hmm. uh so to speak um so we'll get more into it i'm sure but you know it, it's more it's not necessarily the argument i feel like that dostoevsky gives you milton kind of gives you the dramatization as strange as that might sound and as no, much I, as they overlap. i think that's perfect i because i okay. think there is a ton of overlap and hopefully to to save it a little bit this is actually probably in my top three books of all time oh I, I know. I was really surprised by how much I liked this. Um, if if people have been listening for the last seven episodes, they've probably realized at this point that you are the literature guy and mm. I tag along sometimes. And mm. I expected this to be one of the books that we read that I appreciated, but didn't necessarily enjoy. And because it's epic poetry, like in case you can't tell by like everything about me, that's not exactly my cup of tea. I don't like wake up in the morning like, and then the sun hath rises in the east. Like that isn't how I live. And mm. it's bizarre to me. But I think like three pages in, I was captivated by Milton's style. And then, yeah. man, there were literally times in this book where I set it down and started crying just because mm. of how moved I was by mm. by the beauty of some of the writing. So... I think it's like the cherry on top 
to, to the whole idea of it's better to be righteous because of the fall. And at this point, I should probably um, intro what kind of this book is for people who don't know the name Paradise Lost. Sure, um, that seems good. Yeah. So in case you don't know, Paradise Lost is a dramatization of the first three chapters of Genesis plus a little bit of Isaiah. It is the story. It act, The story actually picks up as the angels are falling from heaven. And you spend some time with the angels, some time in heaven, and then you watch Satan journey to earth. And Satan approaches Adam and Eve, and you get to see kind of a firsthand account of what it was like for Adam and Eve to go through temptations. And there's a lot of really interesting um, back and forth between angels, conversations happen in heaven, conversations in hell, and and then you kind of witness the fall. And it is... Hunter, I, I know you mentioned this as an epic, and I totally agree. There's actually a debate online over whether you should classify this as an epic or a tragedy, which I thought was kind of interesting that I read a couple people. And I don't know enough about those words to tell you even yeah. if those are necessarily different, but I just thought that was I, worth mentioning. Of Yeah, I think that might be because, you know, like tip. Well, see, that's interesting because like, okay, I don't want to get too weird on the people here, but <laughs> like the Aeneid is, is one of our classic epic poems, right? And it's definitely more tragic than it is exciting although it does end with rome being created so i guess the hero achieves his goal hmm. the the weird thing about paradise lost and not not to go down the epic poetry route too far but the hero is satan um which is very strange and very different i, I and i'm gonna jump in here because i sure. know that non-literature minds like myself don't get what sure you're go saying. ahead um yeah for you non-literature people, Hunter actually explained this to me way back when we started reading the book. When when Hunter says the hero of the book is Satan, he doesn't mean that Satan is the salvific figure or Satan is messianic in any way or, or Satan is good. What he means is Satan plays the role of the protagonist almost. And but mm-hmm. but even that doesn't work. What he means is Satan the book follows Satan as if he is the central focus of the book and it follows the actions of Satan. It's, it's kind of like if you tried to tell the story of Lord of the Rings, but you folk, you followed Sauron around the whole time instead of following right. the hobbits, you're focusing on him. It doesn't make him the good guy, but it does make him in a literary sense, the protagonist. Is is that a f- fair way to say that Hunter? I, I think it is. I mean, there's like, 500 things you can say there when it comes to like what an epic poet poem is and what it's attempting to do and wh- why the hero is the hero. But yes, is, is Hunter, the short Hunter, maybe just give us like, give me 30 seconds on what epic poetry is. Like I, I know, know that when we started this journey, I didn't know hardly anything other than the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the easiest way to explain epic poetry to people is that epic poetry is star Wars. Um, and, <laughs> and That's I'm not amazing. kidding. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not kidding. Like it's based in the same kind of ideas. Um, when you watch star Wars, every time you watch star Wars, there is yellow text that goes up the screen. That's called an argument. And every chapter that you'll find in paradise lost, there's this little piece at the beginning where like in not, uh, poetry but prose they explain to you what's going to be happening right so that's literally star wars just has that same motif at the beginning I of meant every to movie ask you about that i meant to ask yep. you did um did milton write that or was or is that someone helping me who yeah, isn't no, that's I, I i'll just go with i'm very almost certain milton wrote that oh we'll that's just really cool there um Star Wars, as you know, like at the beginning of cha- of episode four, right? It starts immediately when the dark when the uh, the Death Star plans have been stolen, right? That's called in media res, which means instead of starting at the beginning when we, Princess Leia was a wee little girl and mm. she was growing up, we start right in the middle of the action, right? And at some point during the story, we'll go get the backstory, but we're gonna start right when things are fresh, exciting, and scary, right? The last thing that is kind of a good thing to keep in your mind is the story is of, and you're going to like this, epic proportions, right? The fate of the world hangs in the balance in these yeah, stories, yeah. right? And so, like, it it has to be something. It, it can't be about, 
you can't write an epic poem, so to speak, about finding your dog, right? Maybe you could do that if your protagonist was five years old, right? Hunter, like, I don't think you know my dog. Whole, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the dog you don't have. Um, but, you know, but, like, if your protagonist is five-year-olds, their dog may, in fact, well be their entire world. And that would be yeah. an interesting way to take the idea. But, you know, I don't know if you necessarily want to write a book full of poetry about that. <laughs> it would get a little it would get a little tiring pretty quick. Um, that and other reasons are what epic poetry are. But uh, your most contemporary example that's going to connect you to it is, in fact, Star Wars, strangely enough. I love that actually really helps me uh, yeah. think about epics a little bit more. Um, well, dude, let's let's jump in. I actually I know you're the guy who normally reads us quotes, but I picked one out um, just because it's literally on the first page and it is so it's it it sets the stage for the entire book and without any I don't want to flavor it so I'm just going to go ahead and read this this if you're curious and following along this is book one starting in line 18 and chiefly thou O spirit thou dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure instruct me for thou knowst thou from the first wast present and with mighty wings outspread dove-like satst brooding on the vast abyss and madest it pregnant what in me is dark illumine what is low raise and support that to the height of this great argument i may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of god to men so that that was one sentence, and just in case that was a little confusing, he's he's describing God for the first portion of that, and he basically says, "God, help me out because I'm writing this work to justify your ways to man." So, if that doesn't catch your attention when someone writes that in the first few verses of a book, then I don't know what does. Like you can't you can't set the bar any higher. It's just unbelievable the cojones it takes to write that. Just, hey, God, I'm going to justify the things that you've done. You know the thing that man has tried to figure out ever since he set foot on on the world is what is God doing and why? I'm going to write a mm. book about it. Yeah, unbelievable. The thing, that's, the thing that's interesting about that, too, is this is, and this is one thing that you don't see in Star Wars, regrettably, I know, Um that that would be what we call invoking the muse, right? Which is this, this old school, uh, I should say it's a type of it, right? Which is this old school thing that like Homer would do at the beginning of his, what he would be like, oh, sing, oh, muse, and speak through me the story of, of oh, okay. Odysseus. Now, what Milton do, is doing is clever because it's taking the same um, pattern, technique, mm -hmm. right? And that, but he's making it a prayer to God, right? Wow. So he's he's putting it like in a Christian context, so to speak. Um, but this is like this is one of the things that makes this epic poetry, right? Is because there is a uh, a request to the muse to speak through you, because the idea is at the beginning of an epic poem is what you have to communicate is beyond your human ability to do, right? And so it requires mm -hmm. a muse to get it done. And so he's taking that same idea and basically just saying that's God essentially in this beginning, which is, Oh my cool. gosh, that kind of, that kind of talks to our season theme. And in case Ooh. you are joining weirdly enough at the end of the season, the theme of the season, as Hunter talked about earlier is it's better to be righteous than it is to be right. And Hunter, that kind of goes into that. Like mm -hmm. I need something to do this through me. I would rather be, I would rather be filled with that. I would rather, have something flow through me than be a logically coherent string of words. So yeah. Anyway, man, do you wanna do you wanna jump in? I know you have three points, and that's about all I know about your preparation. And I'm pretty pumped to talk about it with you, man. Yeah. Um. I mean, once again, this is not a book review, uh, show. If we did, we'd spend way too much time, um, going through it. And I mean, like. People have talked about this book forever. In fact, I'd, li I'd like to diverge for one second. Um, you know, one of the things that I did in preparation for uh, kind of putting my notes together on this book when I, when I was reading it the first time with you, Ben, um, is I went and watched a video of a professor discussing this book. 
and it was so um frustrating because i feel at, at certain points um like academia treats this as you know i don't know what the way to say it is exactly but it's just so uh very much thin and what the, what what is written there rather than like you know the meaning of it so to say right and it, it was just it's it's very frustrating because it can be so um wrapped up and i think that i think that's one of the mistakes you can make um if you try to explain what a book is and what the story is to someone to some extent, because if you like put so much effort on that and you don't necessarily, you know, see the ideas and feel the ideas and experience the ideas of the story, you know, that that's really what you get away from the book, right? It's not necessarily the idea. It's not necessarily the A, B, C, D, E, F of a book, right? If that sort of makes sense. It's the, um, it's the principles that you walk away from it and that the book either does convince you of or doesn't convince you of, right? I think like that that's the real thing we get from our stories and th- and the reason why we tell them too. Um, I say a little to say is, you know, we're not a book review show. We're here to give you the points that we find memorable, meaningful, and excellent um, with the idea, hopefully, that you either find it interesting enough to go pick up the book yourself and read it because that's the best experience of that or that you get those ideas so to speak, for free, if that makes sense, without the investment yourself. Um, so with that, without, with that being said, um, we got a couple of ideas from this book that I think are really cool. Um, and one of them is going to really tie neatly with everything we've talked about so far. But let's start here. Um, God's plan plays out in time. And this is kind of a weird idea, but one of the things I think that is so merciful uh, about God and something that Milton comments on here is, you know, if you were to take in the whole idea of God, so to speak, at once, right, it probably, it definitely would be way too much for you to handle. Um, and you can get into the idea of, well, you know, well then why didn't God just make me something that could handle it? Okay, fine, whatever, you know, like that, that's all fine. And I, I get that argument, but I think the other side of that is, it's always one thing to say to somebody that this is your nature, and then it's another thing to live that nature out in front of them. And so I feel like one of the things that's great about God is the fact that not only does he say he's loving, he proves he's loving. And he allows that to be proved uh, through some pretty horrible circumstances, quite honestly. And that shows the depth of his love, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we want to talk about that in, the, in this first point, that God's plan plays on time. Um, Milton talks about this a couple times in the book, but I'll read this um, quote to you guys first, straight from the book. A man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose moral taste brought death into the world and all our woe, with loss of Eden to one greater man, restore us and regain the blissful seat, seeing heavenly muse. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, it's fun. It's exciting. And what Milton's here is describing is of... Uh, what happened at Eden, right? The fact that man took the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, ate from it, and then Eden was lost. And so Milton is essentially saying that that was done so that the greater man could come and restore us back into that paradise, right? Um, and I and I think, you know, that, that's a difficult thing for people to deal with and think about, but Milton has this play out several times in the story. Um, at one point he actually has this really cool conversation in my opinion, where both Jesus and God are kind of having this conversation and they're in heaven and this is, this is a bizarre idea. Yeah. They're in heaven and they're watching, uh, Satan slash Lucifer, uh, make his way back to the earth. Right. And basically he's going to go to Eden and all the angels can see it too. And they're kind of looking around and going, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Like, and this is a simple idea you've had is like, God had to know this was going to happen. Right. He's all knowing. So how, how did this get past him? And you can tell then that God and Jesus begin to have this conversation. And it's very obvious from their conversation that what they're saying isn't surprising to either of them. Right. Like it's not anything new for it's no new information to them. And in fact, it it's either two things. One, they've already decided to have this conversation and are play acting it in front of everybody, 
Or two, the conversation is so in their nature that they have no other way to respond to it than the way they are responding to it. And so what God basically says is, in order to show to show my love and graciousness and kindness to, to mankind, I am allowing Lucifer to go there. And then what needs to happen is there has to be a sacrifice. Who will be that sacrifice? And then Jesus basically goes, me, I will be that sacrifice. I will give everything for him. And God goes, exactly what I want, exactly my plan from the beginning. And Jesus basically says, exactly right. It's your plan. It's my plan. I love it. And all the angels look around and go, this is why this evil is allowed to exist to some extent Mm -hmm. is because this great act of love is going to be made possible by it. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, that's a lot of explaining um, and a lot of talking, but Ben, what, what did you think about that scenario? And what do you think about that idea? Man, as you're talking, all I could think was, we have no idea why God does anything. Yeah. I think that's a great place to start because, dude, have you also heard a bunch of really trite explanations for God's behavior? Like growing up, I would hear like, you know, like a really well-meaning person say like, well, God made us because he was lonely and he loves us so much that he didn't want heaven without us. That's even in mm. a popular worship song. He didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, mm. you brought heaven down. I, I don't even know what song that is, but I could sing it. Um, And there's just all these really cutesy ways to explain why God does something that God does. And I think that God smashes that idea in the Bible right. that we will ever have any remote... F- piece of why he does what he does my ways are not your ways neither are my thoughts your thoughts he says and i can't remember where but there's another part of the word that says don't concern yourselves with things that are too lofty for you like don't don't even waste your time sitting around trying to figure out why on earth would god do that he's god what he says goes it's kind of like well can god make a rock so big that he can't move Oh, it's like, who freaking cares? That's, that's a nonsense question. Stop worrying about it. And when, when you were talking, man, about God's plan and and why they had that conversation, people have been trying to understand why God did that forever. And I, I, I don't think we're ever going to understand that beyond what God has told us about himself. Things like, he is loving, things like he is good. And I do think, and, and I hope I didn't sound like I don't think it's ever appropriate to to ponder big things, because obviously I do or we wouldn't be doing this show. Um, But I think that we can at times try like too hard to, to figure out exactly what God is doing and exactly his motivation for it instead of stepping back and appreciating the painting. We spend so much time trying to figure out exactly what paint it was painted with instead of looking at the beauty of what's happened. So that that's the first thing I think at, about, man. I also loved that conversation. By the way, inter- sorry, were you about to jump in? I'm going to yeah. go to something else if not. Cool. H- have you read the book The Shack? I have, yeah. Yeah, so theologically terrible. Like, don't read it as a theology book if you're a Christian out there. But a really compelling story and a really interesting way to symbolize some things. Um, so that's also what I was thinking about when you were, whenever I think about conversations between a deity, I actually now think about the shack. I also think about this hilarious meme because Hunter, we just celebrated Easter and I saw this meme that just cracked me up. It was Jesus on his knees at Gethsemane and whoever made the meme captioned it, dear father. And then it had God answering back and he said, yes, me. And that just cracked me up because that th- there's such a large element of truth in that. Yes, the, f- the Father, the Son, they're united. And in their will, there is no reason for them to talk. There's, there was no reason for Jesus to pray. We can't figure that out. Why would they have conversations? And they have them for our benefit is the only thing I can come up with. The only thing that seems self-evident. So yeah, I was a little over the place, man, but I think I kind of touched on what you were talking about. Yeah, I think it's something like this is that, you know, um, we, we, we don't ever know what God's plan is. And one of the ways that we get it revealed to us is by experiencing time. Right. Yeah. And, and I think what that whole conversation shows is like, 
we, Milton, like Milton, and unlike the angels at that moment, are on the other side of time, and we've seen that play out, right? The reason Mm -hmm. that sin is going to be let in the door is because Jesus is coming, and it's going to be proof of love beyond your greatest understanding, right? And it's like, that's the idea that I think Milton is trying to capture there, if that makes sense. And I think he... I, and I think you could say, you could see a very, very angry uh, Israelite getting angry with God for letting Eden happen, right? Without seeing the punchline, so to speak. And I think there's plenty of those things in our life, too, that we don't know the punchline to yet. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll see them Sunday and someday, not Sunday. And we get the opportunity to see more and more of those get revealed in our own life. I think this is something that you can see as a believer in your own life in like simple, small ways too, you know, like where something isn't working out and then you pray about it and then you see how like the struggle of going through that prepared you for something later on that you weren't aware of even coming. I've heard that described as the tapestry. I I think this is a famous thought experiment from, from someone a long time ago, but it's like, put your face three inches from a massive painting, a massive tapestry. Sure. Yep, yep, yep. And you're going to have no idea what you're looking at. It's going to be blurry. It's going to be confusing. It's going to look chaotic. And the further you pull your head away, just like time, the further you move along, the more you're like, oh, look, it's a tree. Oh, that line wasn't just a random line to knock me over. Oh, there was actually purpose to that. Thank mm-hmm. the Lord, because I had no idea what was going on. Oh, the tree is in a garden. Okay, I get it. You know what I mean? And you can see where I'm going with that, but that's kind of a comforting idea, I think, for a lot of us. That, And it's a theological idea in terms of the hidden will of God and the revealed will of God. It's like the revealed will of God we've seen. It's like you know it happened because the Bible says nothing's outside of God's will. So it's like, okay, cool. So anything that has happened up to this point is the revealed will of God. And anything to come is the hidden will of God. And then you get into these weird thought experiments where it's like Jesus said he doesn't want anyone not to be saved. So it's like, okay, but we know, well, let me be more precise. Jesus said that he desires that none shall perish. So it's like, and he's obviously talking about eternal destruction when he says that. So it's like, okay, Jesus doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but people are going to go to hell. So there's kind of like these two versions of God's will. If that makes sense, it's like God wishes there was another way, but there isn't almost. And and that that might be heretical, just saying that. It's getting into these waters can get unbelievably confusing. I don't think so. I, I think I think it's like I think it's something like this, like and this is this is this is to get a little deep, you know, but this is like that um this is kind of what Chesterton was saying, like when you know, God himself was an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, even God hates the fact that his nature is so judgmental, right? But in order for it to exist, it has, in order for it to be the ideal that it is, right? It has to be judgmental. It cannot be anything else in, in, to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. And like, he, it's like, it's like, it's something like this. As a father, wouldn't you want all of your children to grow up to be successful and have mansions? Well, yeah, but in order for them to grow up and to be successful and have mansions, don't you have to punish them? And don't you have to like know that some of them probably aren't because that's the nature of success, right? And so it's like, yeah, that's true too. And it's like you 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 don't necessarily like you know what the world is based on you know what the world is and God knows what eternity means. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of something like that. And, and it's kind of actually goes beautifully in with our next point, um, which and, is and that before God Before we roll off that, man, I just want to throw sure. in the last little sprinkle of, I, I, I think C.S. Lewis popularized it, but I don't know if he was the one who came up with the argument. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. there were theologians before him that came up with it, but it essentially says, Good will, or excuse me, free will was such a good, was such a great good, that having a, a world with free will was better than having a world without it. And the kind of simple way to say that is love requires a choice. And Hunter, I've heard you say that sentence before. Love requires a choice. If if God were to make the world of robots, then the robots could worship him, but they would have no free will in doing so. And having free creatures that choose to worship him was such a, a wonderful, great good that God deemed it worth it. So interesting Love idea. It. And one of the yeah. billions of theodicies. 
<laughs> so stepping to this next point, which I think is going to be a great place for us to talk more about this same yep. idea. It's like, even though God rules everything, including the uh, Garden of Eden, he still lets snakes in. That's a weird idea. How, yes. did, how did Satan get in there, right? So let's read this little section and we'll we'll dive more into it. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate, with dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms, and some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps, and slow though Eden, took their solitary way. So this is um, Adam and Eve leaving the garden which is miserable um, and sad and awful. And it's definitely the low point of the story, right? Um, and it, this whole idea is like, why in the world did God let that happen? You know, and you heard me in that same sentence say, why did God let suffering into the world? And why do bad things happen? Like, it's the same question, right? Um, yep. And the answer to one thing that we've kind of been stepping on a little bit here is, you know, do you, you know, I think this is something akin to the being made in the image of God. You know, um, God is capable of creating paradise, right? And this is going to sound like a crazy idea. And his children, he wants to have that same knowledge, right? And he wants them to be things that can do that. And that's, the distance between us and God obviously is something magnificently immense. And so that's not necessarily something he expects us to achieve, but it is something he expects us to live out as that image. Right. And so like, you know, here's a, this is an obvious thing. And we see this play out time and time and again in history too, is, you know, can you create paradise if you're pampered, so to speak? Mm. Right. And the answer is obviously no. Like, if you take care of your children's every need, they become the sort of people that can take care of no needs, right? They never have to work for it. They never have to do anything for it. Um, And so they become uh, weak and ineffective. And there's this idea that perhaps the reason, you know, there's another reason to this snake coming into the garden, right? Or Satan getting the final say, so to speak, in Eden. And that's not only can God show his love, but he also gives the chance to to let his children go out into the world and become something uh, stronger and more beautiful than they were before. I think you get that idea from the world was all before them and where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with warning steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. And it's like that whole idea is almost, it's almost like the start of humanity's journey doesn't begin until Adam and Eve leave Eden. Right. And it's a weird idea, but it's almost like it's, they don't, they almost aren't individuals until that point happens. Right. Which is a weird idea, especially as somebody is somebody that's only had that experience. If you get what I'm trying to say. Okay. I I get what you're trying to say. I think I, I think I might be a hair Dif- different on that part just because i i think our knowledge of what it would s- since we can't remove our conception of sin it's so difficult for us to have any idea what it was like so i i see your sure. point that yeah we're something different than them but but i i just have no way of knowing how different i have no idea of knowing how individual they were because there was obviously a separation between them and god at that point because God came to walk with them later in the day. So he, he wasn't walking around at all times. So there was a separation. So they had some individuality, but not. Here's like a way to think about it is like, they never had to grow their own food. Yeah. You know, like, um, they never had to defend themselves. Well, um, I, I, they never had to clothe themselves. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, to and two like, and three. One of their jobs uh, in the garden was to work it and keep it. And the punishment, I, I think I'm getting into minutia that doesn't affect your point. So I'm being a douchebag. I just realized that. <laughs> um, but they were they were in the garden to work it and keep it and to cultivate it. And they sure. were given the plants for fruit. So they probably were doing some sort of holy work in the garden. And one of the punishments sure. 
that is in Genesis 3 is, and now the ground is going to be tough. Now it's going to be hard, which implies that they already were working it. Um, But I stand by what I said with I'm being a douchebag and missing the actual point that you were making. (laughs) I think I get what you're trying to say there. It's almost like they were working, but it was on easy mode. Now they actually had to work. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that, that is, and it's like, it's really, really, really different to farm without tools than it is to farm with tools, you know, (laughs) so to speak. Right. Um, And I'm sure they had a lot of learning curves there. And I mean, it's obvious that Adam and Eve had no idea what they're doing. I mean, they got two children and then one of them killed the other one, you know, like it was, it was no joke if that makes sense. And, you know, anyway, but then again, you know, we have Jesus and we have that, we have that whole experience now because yeah. of that. So I was sitting around earlier and asking myself like, okay, why did God let, let the snake in? And I was trying not mm. to give myself just the cheesy answers. And mm. one of the cheesy answers that came to me is a hero is only as good as his villain. And okay, th- that's a, that's a phrase I've heard a bunch. And you know, man, I th- I think there's a good point there because if you have no resistance, there's n- there's no pushback. Like like what working out is is breaking your muscles and ripping them apart, and you actually can't grow your muscles unless you incre- unless you in- t- continually increase the weight or just increase the amount of repetitions you do, and that's mm-hmm. the only way to grow. Just like so, man, I was hanging out with I I think I've actually mentioned them multiple times on this podcast. Um, I'm hanging with these ninth graders that I'm, I'm just helping do life. And in, in the Christian world, we'd call it discipleship. And I try to play devil's advocate and just show them that they don't understand anything yet and get them to ask questions all the time. And we're doing that. And I'm being devil's advocate. We're going back and forth. And one of the high school kids goes, it, it is weird how good you are at that. And, and I just laughed. And of course it stoked my ego. And part of me was like, I am pretty good at playing devil's advocate because I had just convinced them all of a position I don't agree with. And, but then I kind of like had to slap myself because I'm like, I'm feeling prideful for beating a 14 year old in an argument right now. That's hilarious. It's like, I can, I can exist at this level, but until I talk to Hunter, until I talk to the other men in my life and women in my life who are who have intellectual prowess and who are more intelligent than me that's the stuff that's going to push me and that's going to the stuff that's going to cause me to grow and there's this i i can't decide if that should apply to the garden or not because without the snake there would have been no pushback there would have been no temptation milton says something really interesting in the book where he says satan fell because of his own pride but the humans fell because they were tricked. And that's a really interesting point. And and maybe tricked isn't the word he uses, but I think you at least get where I'm going with seduced, I think is the word that Milton uses. So it's, it's a, that's a really good point, Ben, because it's, it's quite a, it's quite one thing to be something capable, smart enough and intelligent enough to act on pride. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, y- unless you're naive and an idiot, right? That would be the only time that doesn't work. But if you're like prideful for all the right reasons, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And you've earned that pride, you're a force to be reckoned with, regardless if you're for noble or evil purposes, right? And it's quite a different thing to be seduced by the shining bauble, right? Mm -hmm. And to think in that is your salvation, right? Because then you're just, you're, you're a naive person hoping. And, and it's, it's definitely true that, you know, and this is something Milton does a great job of showing this is, you know, Satan's fall is one of defiance, right? Yeah. It's one of saying, no, not your plan. And I think if I remember correctly, I hope I'm not confusing anything with this. I'm pretty sure that Milton spends a good amount of time showing that Satan was, you know, pretty jealous of humanity and pretty angry about it. Um, especially given the fact that like he was in such a good place and that the human and that humanity was going to be above the angels, so to speak. And it's the, so good. Yeah. Yeah. He um, even gets awestruck with Eve's beauty at one point. Yeah. It's That's funny. a weird yeah. part. It's a Hunter, weird part. I've got one of my, Oh, sorry. Were you done with that thought? Go with it. Yeah. I, I have one of my big questions to ask you. 
Uh-oh. Hunter, and the best part about asking you big questions is I've already thought about what I think, but your answer is usually better, um, even <laughs> doing it live. But it's so fun for me to try. Um, okay. Okay, so this is this is this is tangentially related to why snakes are allowed in the garden. If God is the answer to all our problems, and, and I'm going to betray my answer because the 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 question or the second question that we've asked ourselves, why the snakes are in the garden, isn't in the question. It, I I think it's in the answer, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But if God is the epitome of wisdom. If he is the archetypal knowledge, if he mm-hmm. is righteousness and goodness and, and all of that, then mm-hmm. why do we ever take a moment to read anything but the Bible? Why do we have a podcast about, why do we read Sam Harris, who, who literally writes books to disprove God? Right. What's, what's the point of ever studying anything but the text itself? Um, that... There's really three answers to that question, unfortunately. And the problem is they're all right. Um, <laughs> so uh, for, for starters, um, the very simple answer is that you shouldn't read anything but the Bible. Um, in fact, in your entire life, you'll never read enough of the Bible nor understand enough of the Bible to say that you actually understand it. So, like, you can't ever get to a point where you actually know anything about the Bible in a meaningful way, is what I would think. Um, and what I mean by that is, like, in a fully realized meaningful way. I think you can do some things in your human lifespan that feel meaningful, if that makes sense. But in, like, a full, fundamental, godlike knowledge of the Bible, not possible. So, to, like, To be fair, just because my ears pick this up. Is it reasonable to say, I think someone could take what you said and be like, okay, then how can you know anything about salvation or Jesus? I, I think sure. that That's you would agree. Saying, yes. Yeah, I think you would agree that. I just wanted to throw that out there. And he, I think we both agree that you can learn fundamental truths about the Bible, but there is mm. so much complexity to the word that we will never understand it to a godlike level. Is that... Jesus does a really good job of saying the stu- the simple stuff he wants to get he, he wants you to get in small words and easy to understand stories. Cool. But that doesn't mean that you'll understand God, right? Cool. So, yeah. Um and then I and I think the other answer is like why do you go and read Sam Harris? Well, it's like well, you live in the world and the world has a different view on things and you want to be able to speak to it. Mm-hmm. And and in, in multiple ways, right? is that you want to be able to speak to the people who are distracted by that in the church. You want to speak to the people that believe that in witnessing to them. And you want to be able to speak it into your own spirit to some extent to quiet your own fears and rebellions, right? And doubts. Like you want to know all those things. And then the other answer is one of the reasons we read people like Dostoevsky and Milton and Chesterton is because not because they are better than the Bible, but their conversations about the Bible. That's right. Cool. And so like one of the things I th- I like a lot is the in the there's the best idea in the Bible or one of them is is that you know take your cross and follow me. Um and it's an amazing idea and Dostoevsky explains what that means, which is to say that you are responsible for all of mankind's sins. Mm. And it's like you don't need to have Dostoevsky's phrase um to understand to to live out the idea of taking your cross daily right you don't need it like it's it speaks enough to everyone at that level where it can like impact and teach people but at the other but at the same time dostoevsky is like a lifetime of thinking about what that means and in an instant he can just give you that idea Mm. and then you have it and then like every christian can have that and so that's why you should read dostoevsky is because he's just literally offering up the what you could say is like 30 years of thinking about what it means to take your cross. Right. And so like, that's important too. So unfortunately, those are the three answers to your question. Right. And the answer is you, you should do all of those things, um, all the time, um, as much as you can. Um, and you're limited in human, so you won't be able to do it enough. Well, that was lame. 
Okay, thanks. <laughs> that I, was I, so I, this good, is off man. topic. This is off topic too, and I think this is an important thing to say. And it's something I try to do more and more in my life, and I would encourage you to do it too. Is um this is gonna be a little strange to say. Unfortunately, I get noticed for saying um the more I learn and the more I get I, I graciously get the chance to read and understand more and more of God's knowledge, and this is just a product somewhat of growing up, is sometimes when I say things, um people respond by with approval and you know and 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 gratitude or something like that at some point and i think it's absolutely important that you never ever ever mistake wisdom as something that you've done mm. right and i think that's the most important thing to understand and and to like actually be able to be someone that can continue to speak like that uh or someone that can continue to speak for that is the better yeah. way to say that um because the minute you the minute you make the switch where it's your idea and you know it's it's one of the things that gives you more confidence i think to say stuff that you've heard too if that makes sense is because you realize that everybody is speaking about wisdom they're not speaking of their own wisdom mm-hmm. if that makes sense and i think that's i think that's why you have to a remind people of when they compliment you to some extent is because like a lot of people will think like, wow, if I could just, you know, say that, like the pastor said that if I could just say that, like my teacher said it, and yeah. it's like, no dude, it, it, it you don't understand. I, yeah. this isn't me anyway. So there, right. there's a little side note. I think that's fantastic, man. Um, I, I only came up with one answer for it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was the way you said it, not the fact that you came up with no, one. No, no, I know, I know. I was making fun of myself. No, um, okay. I, I wrote down this sentence: snakes and skin, snakes and sin make us understand God better. Mm-hmm. And that was another of my explanations for why God put the snake in the garden, is because so. I've mentioned on the show before, I've, I've spent some time in the military and during that time you, I would hear this phrase that you learn just as much from the bad leaders as you do from the good ones. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true. I still mm-hmm. remember in basic training, just getting absolutely destroyed by some jerk who doesn't even know why they're doing it. It's just kind of sadistic. And I just remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to be that person. And this, this, and this are the negative Mm -hmm. aspects to that person. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of the beauty of God being perfectly good is that when we learn about the negatives, we're learning about God because God Mm -hmm. is everything that that isn't. So when we, when, when a family member gets cancer, when someone experiences sexual assault, when, you hear about the horrible war stories going on in the Middle East. You fill in the blank for the, for the tragedy. You actually are learning about God in that moment in, in mm-hmm. the strangest way because he is the one that will right all wrongs. He is the one that will heal every hurt um, and bear every burden eventually. It's, it's this weird roundabout way. And I, man, I'm, I'm full of Bible quotes and no citations, but if I go to the lowest hell, then God is still there. So I think that's an, another side to it also is there's just infinite ways to learn that wisdom that you just said that absolutely does not come from us. So, mm-hmm. well, well, hey, man, thanks for knocking that out of the park. And thanks for not accepting that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. My pleasure. Um, but we kind of need to touch on the final point here um and that is that intelligence and reason by itself can become its own hell um milton does this fantastic thing in the story and it's to place knowledge and intelligence within satan itself and almost use and almost say that satan is intelligence like you know there's a very thin line between the character and the theme so to speak um, or the idea. I'll read this final quote. Uh, second to final quote. Penultimate quote. Uh, the mind is its own place. And in itself can make a heaven of hell. And a hell of heaven. Me miserable. Which way shall I fly? 
infinite wrath and infinite despair, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell, and the lowest deep a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. And that's Lucifer talking uh, in the in the story. And it it's this idea that his own psyche itself has become hell. Um, and in kind of in the way that you can think about that is his intelligence itself has become hell. And I think this is true, Ben, to some extent. Um, I think not, this isn't to say that reason and intelligence and knowledge are all actors that produce hell, right? It's to say that they're not the whole picture. They're not the whole human experience, right? And I think what it's actually saying is, you know, this is one of the things that pride has is because pride says there's nothing more for me to learn than this. I'm the end. I am the ultimate, so to speak, right? And that's what pride is essentially saying in like clipped up words, so to speak. And Satan becomes that type of person throughout the story. And and he is constantly thinking that he has the whole picture on thing and that God is wrong. He also knows that's not true because Milton, you know, Milton does that thing where he's very clear that God is in the right throughout the whole story. But what he finds in himself is because of his own ability to deal with everything is that his own existence becomes hell and he doesn't have anything to do with the place. Right. He can't get away from that. And the thing about that, that's so true too, is like you see people live that out in your own life because, um, sometimes they'll even choose it joyfully. It's like they'll, they'll want to live their life in their own terms and in their own way and think that they know everything. And then that will push them into some life that they, didn't realize where it led, right? And then they're in hell. And they and, and what is hell? Hell is to be separated from God. Well, you can you choose to be separated from God? You bet you can. You know, you can put yourself in hell tomorrow if you want to. And it, it doesn't require any judgment or damnation at all, you know? And that's one of the things that you get to see Lucifer actually live out in, in the story itself. But, you know... It, it's, I don't suggest it, but it's something that you can find in your own life or possibly you've already found it in your own life, you know, at certain times. Um, so, and, anyway. and I would say that this, I totally agree. And it's something that ought to terrify us even further, because if you notice there, even what I noticed in that quote is Satan's even realizing that there is a deeper hell that he's going to mm-hmm. sink into eventually. And we can slip into hell while on this earth. But the scariest part yes. about that is there is an even deeper hell. Like this is, there's an old Christian saying that earth is the closest any non-believer will ever get to heaven. And earth is the mm. furthest any Christian will ever get from heaven. I've never heard of that, but that's really pretty. Isn't that great? And, mm-hmm. and it's so true because Roman, I think it's Romans 2, talks about how no one is without an excuse because of creation, because of the majesty of what God has made, that we can see that. And something in our hearts actually knows that there is a creator. And while on this earth, there will always be that. There will always be a piece of that. And just like you said, Hunter, we can choose to not see it. We can close our eyes and we can we can hide from it. But it's still there. But one day it won't be. And that's such a terrifying notion. And I, Hunter, I think we learned a lot of this from Nietzsche back when, mm-hmm. back when we did him a, a couple episodes back because Nietzsche was the first guy to try to set sail in the raft of reason, getting rid mm-hmm. of all the foundations of his predecessors. He was the first mm-hmm. to say, who even says that we want truth? Maybe we should value untruth. And he just completely left the continent and established his own system. And as we talked about, with his belief system, I can't condemn Hitler. With his belief system, Mm. Stalin's fine because they were chasing their will to power. And Mm. his belief system was fairly coherent. Mm -hmm. And that's the terrifying part about it. And that's what it Mm. produces. And there's this weird thing where at the end of the day, you have to have faith in something. I, I think that's what I come to. It's like, I haven't met the person without faith yet, man. If you tell me that you believe yeah, yeah, that yeah. America was founded in 1776, you're doing so on the basis of faith. 
You're doing so because you believe something that you were told, something that you did not witness, something that you did not see happen. We have written records, but how do you know those are reliable? You know they're reliable because of faith. Just like you have faith that the declaration was written, then you have faith in what a scientist says about how our earth was, just like you have faith in how we ought to live. We all have faith. And there's this push to kind of, I don't know, treat religion as the only system of faith, but atheism is a system of faith, man. People just don't Mm -hmm. talk about it. Atheism is the faith that there isn't God or the faith that if there is a God, I'm better off without worshiping him. Mm. So I think that's where we come back to with this idea, man, that you got to put your freaking faith in something. What are you going to put it in? I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think the, the, main takeaway i i think i make is you know your reason and your intelligence are all in some ways god-given abilities that you have to explore the world um to see the world to understand him better and 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 they're excellent tools and you should inculcate them and you should utilize Mm. them and you should grow them well said all that's true that being said we live in an era where we think that that's all there is. And that's the only way to know something. And the truth is, act that out and see how far you get. Mm. Right? Which is your point, Ben, that everyone actually has some faith. Right? And if you choose to actually live your life on those principles, you have to do one or two things pretty quickly. One, you have to become so paranoid that you can't live. Right? Or two you have to overestimate your knowledge, right? Mm. And when you've done that, you will find yourself in hell, right? Because you're not capable of knowing everything. And that's what wisdom teaches you, is that you don't know everything, yet you still can act, right? Wow. how How do you act? By faith, right? And by faith in something higher than yourself, Right. That just explained to me why we call Proverbs a book of wisdom, even though it's a lot of practical advice. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Because it's 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 like it's not it, metaphysics. It, it, <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Um, a lot of a lot of your life is is the aphorisms that somebody has pulled out from their life before you. Yes, right. Yes. Yes. Um, so anyway, um, that's the season, everybody. Um, that's exciting, Ben. I had a good time with that. I think, you know, I, I hate to say it. I think we, we, we made the argument well in the first thing. And I think this has been a a very long winded wind down on some of the greatest books, but I really enjoy doing it with you. I look forward uh, to possibly doing the next one. Obviously we have a lot more books to read and a lot more things to do. Um, but it's been exciting, man. Thank you for doing it with me. Man, right back at you, buddy. Thank you for doing this with me. And I mean, even if we don't record a second season, we're going to have the conversations anyway. Um, That's true. So I'll record them so I can listen to them later. Uh, sure. Well, man, for for the last time of the first season, thank you for listening to the Leatherbound podcast. We haven't even thrown all these episodes together yet, so we don't have all the social medias up yet. But you can follow Hunter at Emotional Carl. You can follow me absolutely nowhere because that's kind of creepy. Um, we are a podcast where two cousins try to become better people by reading bigger books. Hunter thinks it's something else. Still confusing to me, <laughs> man. We really hope that you've gotten something out of this because it, it absolutely gives us life. We love exploring these ideas, uh, seeing where they take us. If you find them compelling, uh, we're going to release some ways for you to get in touch with us. You can start out just by finding Hunter on the social medias. Um, again, that's at emotional Carl. Thank you for joining Leatherbound, and we can't wait to talk to you again in Season 2. If you've made it this far, then you're a true fan of the show, or you're a true literary buff, and you just couldn't wait till it was all done. And so, if you are that person, we're leaving you with a quote uh, that has little to do with the show, but has so much to do with the... uh, beauty that is in Milton's paradise lost. Um, and also just the beauty that is in love. Uh, this is Adam. Once Eve comes to him and shows that he, she has eaten the apple. And this is his response 
to that to to seeing her in that state. How can I live without thee? How forgo thy sweet converse and love so dearly join to live again in these wild woods forlorn? Should God create another Eve and I another rib afford? Yet loss of thee would never from my heart. No, no, I feel the link of nature draw me, flesh of flesh, bone of my bone thou art, and from thy state mine never shall be parted, bliss or woe. However, I with thee have fixed my lot, certain to undergo like doom. If death consort with thee, death is to me as life. So forcible within my heart I feel the bond of nature draw me to my own, my own in thee, for what thou art is mine. Our state cannot be severed, we are one, one flesh to lose, thee were to lose myself. And that's Leatherbound, season one. Man. Rate, subscribe, love us, ring the bell, whatever, bye. Adios, kiddos.